This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for joining me. If you have any questions, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. In the studio, I have with me Dr. Agnes Lee. She's the medical director of the Thrombosis Clinic at Vancouver General Hospital. And she's here because we're going to be talking about VTE. Now, probably a lot of you are... Um, aware and sad, have been saddened by the death of Luke Perry, an early death. He died of stroke. Um, and that is um, something we're, that we're surprised about, that somebody dies of a stroke quite young, at the age of 52. We didn't expect that. But there's another altogether uh, different category that uh, people need to be concerned about, and that is VTE. So, Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. And can you tell me uh, what VTE is? VTE is exactly. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. So, VTE is short for venous thromboembolism. Um, it's one of the three types of blood clots that kill a lot of Canadians every year. So, the three main types of blood clots, heart attacks, stroke that Luke Perry died from, and VTE, venous thromboembolism. And all three of them are potentially fatal, and all three of them have signs and symptoms that we want people to be aware of. So when they develop them, they can go to see a doctor, go to the emergency room, and get help right away. Is this something that would surprise somebody that they had a VTE, and can it occur at any age? Yes, absolutely. So VTE, one of the three major causes, um, it actually stands for or uh, two related diseases called deep vein thrombosis. So that's blood clots in the legs mm-hmm. and pulmonary embolism, blood clots in the lungs. Right, so we call so, that DVT or PE. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So when patients develop or when people get develop DVT or deep vein thrombosis in their legs, they can experience swelling or sort of a Charlie horse sensation. They may see some... Um, sort of redness or heaviness in the leg. And often people will ignore those symptoms because they think, oh, maybe I banged it, maybe I twisted, you know, maybe sometimes they even think it's an infection. And will this and happen in the calf mainly or can it happen in the thigh as well? Often it occurs in the calf first mm-hmm. and then the symptoms will spread sort of proximally. Now, sometimes those blood clots in the leg can break off. They travel in the veins and goes into the heart and then the lungs. And when it wet these wedges in the lung, they're called pulmonary embolism. And that, when that happens, it could potentially be fatal. And if you do not get treatment for pulmonary embolism, about a third of the, the people will die. So again, this is important to know. And that's why, you know, we're right now trying to increase awareness and, and get people to understand and know what the signs and symptoms are. So I described the symptoms for the legs when you get a blood clot in the legs. When you get blood clots in the lungs, PE, you may experience shortness of breath chest pain. Some people will get a sense of lightheadedness or dizziness because the blood isn't flowing well. And so we've actually put all of those symptoms together in an acronym to help people to remember. And it actually spells out CLOTS, C-L-O-T-S. So C for chest pain, mm-hmm. L for lightheadedness, O for out of breath or shortness of breath, T for tenderness in the leg, and S for swelling in the leg. So sort of like the acronym for stroke fast, we're trying to get people to remember the acronym CLOTS. And if you get a constellation, a combination of these symptoms, it's very possible that you have a blood clot in your leg or in your lung or both, and you really should go to see your doctor right away or go to the emergency department if you don't. 
And very interesting. Now, uh, what are some of the risk factors for um, uh, pulmonary embolus or DVT? Um, so the most important risk factors or the strongest risk factors that will promote having, you know, having a blood clot, cancer, surgery, hospitalization. Those are the main ones. Um, but other risk factors that are actually very common as well includes just being older. Anybody over the age of 65 have a much higher risk of having a blood clot compared to younger people in their 20s or 30s. Um, if you're on um, oral contraception, pills, for example, pregnancy. Um, so, you know, these are healthy people otherwise, and they, those conditions do increase the risk. So we want everybody to be aware and be in, informed about these signs and symptoms. So if they develop them, they go get medical attention. Right. And um, can so young people can actually um, get this as well? Yes, young people. So that they're associated with conditions or, or medication that they're taking. Yeah, so young women, the, the number one mm-hmm. you know, risk will be birth control pills. Right. Um, in younger men, very, they're far less likely to develop, develop blood clots, uh, but for young men, it's probably usually related to trauma, um, extensive injury, hospitalization, that type of thing. Right. Um, so you could be healthy or you could be sick. And this, again, why having the g- general awareness what the signs and symptoms are, just like knowing the signs and symptoms of a stroke or heart attack, you go get medical attention. Exactly. Because when people are in the hospital, they're laid up. After surgery, they're not moving around. And Absolutely. that's one of the problems that yes. increases the... But does a sedentary lifestyle increase the... It can, especially if you have other risk factors going. So sedentary lifestyle associated with being overweight, Mm -hmm. all right? So if you now get a minor infection, that can then, you now have three risk factors. So the ducts are sort of lining up. Right. And so it it really then um, escalates your risk. And how about smoking? Smoking can increase your risk, um, especially blood clots that are in the arteries that give rise to heart attacks and stroke. Less so for DVT and PE, but we do know that smoking do damage the blood vessels and the blood vessel lining is what we need to keep healthy to prevent blood clots, both heart attacks, well, strokes, heart attacks, and and DVT, PE. And this is why women on the oral contraceptive pill should not be smoking. Yes, absolutely. Yes. It's it's definitely a no-no. Usually, you know, family physicians should... Um, remind their, their, you know, female patients, if you're on oral contraception, um, you really should avoid smoking. You should avoid smoking anyways, all right, but definitely the, the combination is bad. Um, also, women with migraines, um, that is a, a risk factor. Um, it seems to identify people who are more at risk for DVT and PE. So if you have a migraine, it's usually recommended against against, um, you know, being on the birth control pill as well. Um, so there are a whole host of factors that can link up and, and increase your risk. Right. And how about women on hormone therapy or what, what used to be called hormone replacement therapy um, who are smoking? Is oh. that, does that increase? And, and they're overweight. Oh, yeah. Bad, bad combination. Bad so combination. being on hormone replacement is like being on the birth control pill. So yes. any hormone therapy that has estrogen in it will increase the risk, um, just like in, you know, in pregnancy as well. So um, definitely for women, um, you know, the, the bad combinations, smoking, being overweight on any estrogen therapy. Um, and now if you have surgery as well, or even if you're now re- laid up in bed because of the flu, you're adding more and more risk factors. Mm-hmm. So we want people to be 
to be aware and try to reduce those risk factors or you know modify them if they can. Right. And where can people go if they have if they require more information about this, Dr. Lee? So um, at the VHH Clinic, we have a website uh, www.thrombosisbc.ca. So there's general information about what blood clots are, what the signs and symptoms are. So try to remember clots because that's hopefully it's easy and right. Yeah, <laughs> and um, it also has some information about treatment. Thrombosis Canada is also a very good website uh, for, for both uh, general practitioners, nurses, as well as uh, the general public to get more information as well. That, that's fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Agnes Lee, Medical Director at uh, Va- Vancouver General Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for joining me on what is St. Patrick's Day. I'm the Irish Catholic nurse that talks sex, by the way. We will be talking sex a little bit later on in the program, but uh, right now we're going to be talking about depression. Depression is common. It's a very serious medical illness. It's a physical illness that negatively affects how you feel. It affects the way you think and how you act. But it is treatable. Depression causes feelings of sadness and or loss of interest in activities that were once enjoyed. enjoyed. Joining me in the studio is Dr. Wad Planet. He is a neurologist, and we're going to be talking about um, ketamine, one of the latest treatments for people with depression. So this is a, um, a new molecule, molecule. Thank you, Dr. Planet, for joining me in the studio. Yes, in the studio. Uh, yes, not a neurologist. <laughs> just uh, straighten that out. Just a neuroscientist. Just but, a neuroscientist. Never it, just. Yeah, but it might be good because I don't have any um, betting on each side of the two sides of this current story. So you'll get a general point of view. Right, because um, there, there. This, this is a party drug, ketamine, from the eighties, really. Yes. Um, and but it's been studied here in Vancouver. It's my understanding, and as well um, in globally. the U.S. globally. So, so twenty years ago, somebody started looking at it um, for depression. Mm-hmm. So we've had twenty years of research of ketamine. Um, but like I say, the controversy is it can it is used from the sixties as a sedative and as a anesthetic. So it can put you under at certain doses. At a lower dose, it is a hallucinogenic drug like LSD or mushrooms. And so how is it that they've done some of these trials uh, with this type of of medication? Because this can't have been easy. Yes, and this is where the controversy is, is uh, from the 50s and 60s, the main theory of depression was the monamine theory. And most of you heard of serotonin and Prozac. Mm -hmm. And so you increase serotonin with Prozac. And that was the main theory. The problem with Prozac, or most serotonin uh, drugs, is it takes weeks to become effective if it becomes effective. And about one-third of patients don't respond to any of antidepressant treatments. So these people were looking for alternatives. These neuroscientists are looking for alternatives because there is a need. Such as you mentioned, we have such a high level of depression. Mm -hmm. And so there's the alternative theory, which is uh, to do with glutamate. And ketamine acts on glutamate. And specifically, it actually blocks the MNDA receptor. And MNDA is one of the receptors for glutamate. And it's complicated the biology because glutamate is usually um, important for learning. So we want glutamate, and that helps us with good memory. But ketamine actually blocks the, the receptor for glutamate, 
but it does it on a synaptic connection that usually inhibits the other <laughs> glutamate connections. So in simply, you're inhibiting the inhibitor, therefore you end up with more glutamate, which ends up with more brain-derived neurotrophic factor, TREK B, and eventually increase of dendritic growth. And anything that increases dendritic growth not only helps learning, but usually helps alleviate depression in the big picture of the story. Very interesting. And so it will alleviate um, the the symptoms. Now, you mentioned that it takes upwards of six weeks, really, for depression medication to kick in. Oftentimes, because it it can start uh, after about Within about two weeks, people start to feel tingling in their, um, they may feel that in their limbs and they may go off of the medication. Their depression may worsen in the first little bit, um, but it takes a couple of weeks to cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, no, it's not, it's not that. It's um, serotonin or Prozac, which we'll take as the typical antidepressant drug, right. um, acts very quickly, but you're right. The symptoms of depression usually takes weeks, even sometimes months to relieve if it works. And you have to titrate the dose upwards quite often. And always adjusting. Now, the interesting thing about ketamine, and that's why they really push forward for this, is it's fast acting. You can get an effect in four and a half hours. And so, you know, again, um, nobody wants depression, but obviously if it's suicidal thoughts, you want to act even quicker. So, if you're suicidal and, you, and it's weeks before you get a response, if you consistently take the drug and you're a responder, obviously we have an alternative that would be a better thing. And ketamine is one of those hopeful, which they started 20 years ago. And like I say, 60% of the people uh, will respond within four and a half hours. And when I say respond, that usually means a 50% reduction in their depression score. Okay. And that's for people who already didn't respond to other antidepressants. Okay. So that's pretty significant. Yes. But like you say, um, or said, is there's the worry of it. And that's the, you know, I think there's probably two sides in the medical establishment, if not more, about this subject. Is they're worried about abuse, because it can be abuse. It can be hallucinogenic. Obviously, they try to lower the dose. Because, like I say, it can be used as a anesthetic. It can be used as a party drug. And even lower doses is what's used for the antidepressant effect. And you take this daily? Nope. Is this... Um, a- it's actually... Uh, the traditional, or the way they've done the clinical trials mm-hmm. is twice a week, one or t- two times per week for four weeks. Okay. That's what it's taken. Um, and then after that, about 40% of the patients only need it once a month. Ballpark. Now, okay. I, think I think that's where they're really trying to learn more about. They don't know the long term, and they're worried about the long term effects, and also how often you have to take it. Now, some people will go in full remission, um, but it sounds like around 40%. Uh, once a month after the first uh, four weeks is enough. Wow. Uh, now, I know in the trials, I, I believe if I remember some of the trials that were done here in, in British Columbia, the patients had to be monitored uh, while they took this medication, while they were studying it. Yeah, and that's important. That's what the, the reason it's in the news is because FDA approved ketamine or a version of ketamine, S-ketamine, which is uh, produced by Johnson & Johnson or a company of Johnson & Johnson. And so um, in the United States, there have been clinics that have, will give you ketamine off-label for five or ten years. Um, it's unregulated. Uh, it's up to the individual doctor. But now the big difference is FDA has approved this version. And what's important to that is then it's covered by some of insurance. Before, people were paying $500 per treatment. And if you're doing that twice a week, it gets expensive. Right. Now it's even slightly more expensive because it's a 
patented a drug, I guess. And it's about $600 to $900 per treatment, depends on the dose. And so for your four weeks, you're looking at U.S., $42 to $7,200 ballpark. Um, and, but the big thing about this FDA approval is some of it will, you know, depending on your insurance coverage, will be covered. Before by, it wasn't. By third-party coverage. Yeah, whatever obviously. U.S. coverage you have. Right. Um, and how about in Canada? Is this... I know nothing about Canada. If okay. I was taking a guess. Traditionally, we follow United States, yes. be it X amount of years afterwards, mm-hmm. right? So after U.S. does it, it's all safe, everybody's happy. Um, when that will happen, I assume it hasn't happened in Canada yet, when that will happen in Canada is unknown at this time. Right. So that is uh, certainly an outrageously expensive price um, to pay for a, a medication for depression. I mean, you, even though depression is a, a horrific illness... And um, but you have to be pretty wealthy to be able to afford that. Yes, yeah, so obviously these people have been doing it previous to this FDA approval. It's obviously only the wealthy. Uh, the average antidepressant drug isn't you know it still costs you something, but it's not th- anywhere in this ballpark. No. And the prices I quoted to you is just almost the wholesale drug cost. That doesn't include the clinic because oh, I, I should get this uh, specifically correct. Esketamine is approved by FDA for use but it has to be done in a very organized, um, regulated clinic. You have to already have failed two other antidepressant drugs, so you're a Mm non-responder, which is about a third of the population of people that uh, have major depression. Then you're you're going to be followed in this clinic, and you also take an additional antidepressant. Um, And if you can afford it, obviously, and hopefully have the appropriate insurance. So you take an additional antidepressant on top of this as well? Yeah, that sounds like the regulation, as far as I can tell. You have to take another oral antidepressant. So Um, it isn't just... And I guess the oral antidepressant that you're taking isn't working for you, or it's only working partially, perhaps. That would be my guess. Right. Um, And so the controlled setting is that you're under the care of a physician, or are you actually going to a clinic and being monitored for, you know, several hours? Yeah, that's my understanding is two hours, you definitely have to be monitored. Um, And obviously, I assume there's additional cost to that medical profession doing that. Um, And then, you know, you're always, you always have to go to that clinic. Like, obviously, if you're taking your own antidepressants, you go to the... Right. uh, ...bathroom cabinet and take it. But in this case, you have to go in. And again, it's... In theory, only twice a week for four weeks, and after that, less. But yes, definitely very controlled. Right. Um, now, I, you may not know this, but um, the I'm curious about the withdrawal syndrome, because a lot of patients who take antidepressants are never told about antidepressant withdrawal syndrome, or AWS, and they then try to go off of the antidepressant after they've done talk therapy and started to exercise and start to feel better and have dealt with their issues. Um, does the uh, ketamine actually have that withdrawal syndrome? I think that's a very important point that isn't talked enough about. And since I'm not a specialist, I don't have to worry about what I I say about this. But yes, I think that's a very important... Obviously, you have to slowly go off any antidepressant drug. Mm -hmm. And um, there's so much adaptation because you are getting extra serotonin. And so therefore, your receptor is actually downregulated. And therefore, when you go off it, you're actually almost in a worse state. Right. At least according to what I read. Right. So ketamine, I haven't, again, it's, even though it's less studied, and that is why it's going to be carefully monitored on this. Um, it seems like I say, 40% of the people are down to only once a week or mm-hmm. once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Yeah, I don't know enough about that, and I'm sure they're going to study that. Uh, absolutely. Well, we're gonna. I'm going to ask you to stay in the studio, if you don't mind. And uh, we're going to bring Andrew in on this conversation when we come back. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I have neuroscientist Dr. Ward Plunett in the studio with me. We're talking about depression. 300 million people around the world have depression, according to the World Health Organization. 1.6 million adults in Canada, about 6.7% of all adults in the country, have experienced a depressive episode in the last year. Um, we're, thank you so much, Dr. Plunet, for staying in the studio with me talking about this. Uh, Andrew, you had some interesting conversation last week with the head of the Multidisciplinary Clinic of Psychedelic Drugs. Yeah, I, uh, I, a couple weeks ago, I actually had an opportunity when this story first broke uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I talked to Mark Hayden. He's the executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies uh, in Canada. And he's also an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia. And if you're just joining us, and I don't usually jump into these segments, but if you're just joining us from the break, I figured, well, I didn't want to let, you know, a perfectly good interview, you know, not get some airtime because it's something that could really affect a lot of people. It certainly can. And we hope the price comes down. But. Right. That, that's the biggest thing. And so I, uh, well, the, the, one of the first things that I asked him was, you know, people think ketamine and they think, you know, party drug or surgical anesthetic, right? Those are the two things that come to mind. Mm-hmm. So, so I asked him, you know, why does this work? Why does he think that this works? And here, take a listen to a bit of the conversation I had with him. Okay. The closest that I can come to a speculation is it just really fractures people. It sort of takes people to a completely different place. And eventually they come back and put it all back together again. And for some reason, they put their lives back together in a healthier way. And we're talking in about 20 minutes or half an hour. So it's a a kind of a, a disorienting and a reorienting process. And the reorienting just seems to be healthier. And we don't exactly know why. And I, I didn't have the, you know, the, 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 the grand fortune to actually be able to speak with a neuroscientist, but I figured this might be a good, like, I guess, topic of discussion. Like, wh- like what does he think about that? You know, this kind of, it, it almost, you know, I'm going to major paraphrase here, but almost shatters your mind. And then when you wake up, you kind of, you put it back together. And he's talking about patients who have gone under the knife uh, and had ketamine administered as, as, the, as the anesthetic. Right after that procedure, they seem to kind of, you know, put it back together. And put their lives back it's together. It's a curious, yeah. I, like, he doesn't even know uh, how that mechanism works. And, like, he was upfront about that. He's like, we don't really have, like, a grand idea. Like, we have hunches, we have guesses. Right. Dr. Plunet has a good understanding of how it works, I think. Go ahead. Okay, so that, that is interesting because there's a difference between the use um, in the surgical situation or uh, the party drug, those are higher doses, and those will maybe shatter uh, your, your world. These, um, this version of ketamine, which is esketamine, it specifically use a lower dose, and ketamine, when it's used for antidepressant in general, is a lower dose, and it's specifically meant not to be hallucinogenic. Hallucinogenic, I can't even say that. Uh, hallucinogenic. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's not... Maybe people that do have it in other situations, it can be helpful. And uh, people report that also with mushrooms and stuff like that. That would probably get, that would be hard to get through the FDA at those levels. Uh, So they're specifically trying to make it lower than that and that you're not hallucinogenic. And that's why you have the two hours in the clinic. So they can monitor you, but they don't want that to happen. But there's chemical processes that are going on in your brain as opposed to just shattering your brain, if you will. And so we'll call it a lighter version. And it's general plasticity. So 
you talk about running, I think, before, is that exercise increases neurogenesis and running relieves depression at a certain level. So anything that induces plasticity, neurogenesis, dendritic growth is usually good for the overall health of the brain, including reduced depression. And in this case, that's what they think. They, they're increasing plasticity by increasing BDNF, TREK-B, mTOR activation, which helps uh, protein synthesis and greater dendritic growth. Um, um, and that's how they generally think it works. Right. How about some of the other psychedelics, Andrew? Did you talk to... Yeah, because he, uh, he just brought up, you know, mushrooms is one. And psilocybin right. has been studied for a long, long time. Uh, it's not the only one. And I, I got to speak to Mark Hayden about this as well. So MDMA... Uh-huh. is one that, that scientists have been looking at. And so which MDMA, is ecstasy. Yeah, ecstasy, which is ecstasy. Right? And yeah. it's seen some use, but I also have some, like, besides that, what else has been used? And here's a snippet of that. So, yes, we're, we're doing um, MDMA, methylene dioxymethamphetamine, sometimes known on the street as ecstasy. We're doing MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Specifically, we're reaching out to soldiers and police and um, other first responders. And we're, we're treating post-traumatic stress disorder. And so far, the indications appear to be that we'll treat it more effectively than any other existing treatments. Psilocybin, you talked about it a couple times, and it caught my eye. What are you looking to use psilocybin for? Well, we don't. Maps Canada doesn't have any psilocybin programs, projects going on now, but certainly I would like to see programs that look at it for things like the treatment of um, addiction disorders, alcoholism. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting because Canada was a forefront in the forefront of research looking for about 15 years, between 1950 and 1965. And of all of that research of um, thousands of patients who received this this. Um, this treatment and, and probably a thousand studies that were that were published. If there was one conclusion from all of that research, is that LSD is useful in the treatment of alcoholism. And so, personally, I would like to bring that back. So he he brought up a couple here, and we're starting to run up on the clock here. But I just think that it's interesting that in a way we're kind of going back to these to these treatments. Absolutely. And did he talk about the screening process? Do you remember what um, who gets to go into these trials or? And so here, uh, we've got a bit of time here. I'll play the last little bit of this. And I asked him about that screening process because, you know, like we talked about in that first segment, not just anyone can, you know, waltz into their clinic and ask for this. So here's a bit of that. Okay. Well, currently, there's a very intense screening. Um, People who are appropriate for many of the studies have to be screened in terms of a variety of other mental health indications. I mean, things like schizophrenia or risk of schizophrenia um, is something that's a concern to people who are providing psychedelic psychotherapy. Um, that's that's one example. There are many others. Personality personality disorders as well um, are probably not um, useful. Um, psychedelics probably aren't useful for them, and it could make it worse. So um, people are very carefully screened f- f- with a depression study specifically. So they just have one treatment diagnosis, not multiple. And you know that doesn't follow for everyone. Not everyone only has that single diagnosis. But you know that's something that going forward needs to be looked at uh, with a lot more detail. And again, that was Mark Hayden. He was the executive director of the Multiple Disciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies here in Canada. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. Um, you know, I've often said mental health is created. Um, you know, a healthy lifestyle, l- re- little or no alcohol, uh, exercise every single day, deal with your issues, uh, conflict, uh, go and have talk therapy if you need it. You you know, medications uh, work. Dr. Ward Plunett, 
Thank you so much, neuroscientists. Thank you so much for joining me here in the studio and explaining all of this and all of the uh, the brain things that are going on there. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you be a for quiz later. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. And as Health Canada approves this medication, hopefully we'll have you back um, in studio. Thanks so much. And thanks, Andrew, for your contribution as well. Stay with me for the next hour. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. I am here in the studio with Mackenzie Chilton. She has a master's in forensic psychology, and we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence. Thank you so much for joining me, Mackenzie. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Okay, emotional intelligence. What is it? Why is it important? And how can you get it? All right. Well, those are, we could talk for hours about that. But quickly, emotional intelligence is essentially yourself being aware of your own emotions, how they impact others and how they impact your life. And then additionally, how other people's emotions might be affecting the situation. So it's about awareness, essentially. And how about emotional regulation? Is that a difficult thing for some people to achieve, i.e. when people lose their cool? Mm -hmm. We saw R. Kelly do that recently on a television interview. Oh, yes. Bless Gail in that interview. Oh, my. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think we all have someone that we can think of right now that we are, you know, maybe raising our hands saying, yep, they are, they might need some of that uh, regulation. Exactly. And so, and and perhaps we have at one point or another in our lifetime uh, lost it over something, maybe a combination of factors. We're tired. It's the last straw. We're not really sure what to do. And so we tap into that uh, anger and Mm -hmm. that, that ego, that inner rage, and we let that inner rage out and blame that on somebody else. Yeah. And I think, um, the easiest example to give is, uh, road rage, right? So it's something, and there's the, the connection that people often miss is between the emotion and the triggering event. And so someone cuts you off, that is the trigger. And then you don't take the time to process that you are, in fact, not in danger. And so anger or fear, which leads to anger, kind of spikes up. And that's where you get that reaction because it's not being assessed properly when the trigger happens and regulated. There was somebody in court today, I think it was, or recently anyway, that um, where he was enraged and found himself, actually both of them went to court this week, um, the person that had the road rage, I guess they both had road rage, but one went on the hood of the car and the other one continued to drive him. So they're oh both in goodness. trouble. They both lost it. Um, yeah. but, but we lose it in life. So what is, why is, uh, you are a career coach as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is it, why is it important that people maintain their emotions or decorum or, you know, that they or cool, or I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for, but why is emotional intelligence important at work? At work? So it goes beyond um, being able to regulate um, what they call the unpleasant emotions, right? It goes at a certain point in your leadership journey, everyone will have the same skill set. So I like to use a chef as an example, and every chef at a certain level will be able to chop that onion really quickly. And then after that, it becomes about leadership and about team building, um, which innately requires interpersonal relationships. And emotional intelligence at its core really um, up-levels that. And so a lot of major companies are doing emotional intelligence training um, and are, are really looking for that in their leaders. And is this something people are born with? 
It is something that we're born with. So it's similar. Um, people often compare it to IQ, but unlike IQ, you can change it. So it's quite adaptable and you can increase your emotional intelligence with a bit of work. And that was my other question. Can it be cultivated? Yes. So, and and yes. how can it be cultivated? What are, what are some of the strategies that people need to do in order to cultivate emotional intelligence or emotional quotient? I, I gather mm-hmm. they're the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So um, there's a few ways that you can do it right away. And that's just taking, basically taking that step back um, and looking at the situation, looking at what emotions it brought up for you, what physically happened. So when we get that clenched fist, um, things like that. And I like to recommend to people to not use kindergarten words. So um, don't use happy, sad, or angry and go real, really deep into what that emotion is for you. So if it is sad that you feel like you're feeling, maybe it becomes disrespected or not seen or other other things like that. So you really have more of an awareness about what's going on. And if you really want to amp up your game, there's books you can read. There's um, Obviously, there's a lot of information on the web. Of course, um, yes. But there's something called the EQI 2.0, and that's what I do in my work with a lot of leaders and honestly a lot of parents. Um, And it's a standardized test, so that means it's been tested for its reliability and its validity, meaning it consistently looks at the same things and tests what it's supposed to test. And what that does, I call it like the coolest Cosmo quiz around, (laughs) and it it spits out, um, it's 101 statements, and it's an assessment that spits out what your EQI is. Um, And then you work together with a coach, me or someone else that is certified in this training, and they help you look at, um, you know, are you really high in empathy? So I scored actually quite high in empathy. And that was something that I needed to go back, go take down a little bit. Pull back on. Yeah, I can mm-hmm. see. I can imagine. Yeah. And so it, it basically ranks on self-awareness, um, interpersonal communication, decision making, stress tolerance. So a lot of I think if someone hears emotional intelligence, they think, oh, we're just going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and right. cry about our feelings. <laughs> we're right? not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> no. I want to take that test, though. I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. in that. I think I'd like to take that and maybe maybe bring you back at a later date. Yeah, and, and that would see be cool. How, yeah. Um, but you mentioned parents. And mm-hmm. recently we've had some parents in the U.S. involved in a college fraud scheme or scam, yeah. uh, tax evasion, tax fraud, wild. Um, trying to pave the way for their children. Not that their children's lives weren't easy enough already mm-hmm. with what I imagine are, are mansions and uh, mega swimming pools right. and tutors and coaches. Just and all the privilege. All of the privilege. <laughs> and so that wasn't enough. So uh, they actually have to pay millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much money involved here, which tells me that these people don't even have any value of of the sense of money because if you had empathy, perhaps you could take that half a million dollars that Lori Laughlin um, yeah. allegedly paid uh, to get her child her children into USC and maybe provide educational opportunities. You know, set up a foundation, provide educational opportunities for other people, and actually teach your children how to do well in school. Mm-hmm. How that you know, hard, it's hard work putting in the effort. So, what do you, what would you think in terms of um, you know? What would be the potential for somebody who's had everything handed to them, and and then eventually they're going to have to go into the workplace? And uh, you know, are there some risks associated with not holding kids accountable? I mean, I think that is definitely true, and in a way, I I have empathy for those parents that are probably in a world where that is um, somewhat normal, mm-hmm. and I mean, the education system in the states is very. Um, 
different. <laughs> yes, that's yes. Nice you do that. have to pull back on that empathy, Mackenzie, because <laughs> yeah. you feel sorry for the billionaire movie stars. <laughs> I'm saying I can maybe no, understand <laughs> where it comes from. But I think that the truth to that is that um, they're not actually, they're doing the opposite of what they are intending. They're You're not right. setting up their children to be successful. And I don't even want to say in the real world, because chances are those children might never even touch what we consider the real world right. um, on a day-to-day, but they aren't setting them up to make decisions for themselves, to be put in stressful situations and cultivate that problem-solving skill set that's so important. Exactly. And I think kids, regardless of how much money you have, they need to have some skin in the game, especially post-secondary education. I think um, you know, a lot of kids are coming out of school with debt um, today and you know, an, an mm-hmm. exorbitant amount of debt, but you know, if you can still afford to pay for your children's education, they need to understand the value of that in in some way. Yeah, and um, uh, so that's uh, you know very very <laughs> a very interesting case down there about parenting the how not to parent exactly <laughs> Perhaps, yeah how not to know. parent. But I think that emotional intelligence it is being brought into schools um, as we look at like just from my generation. I I'm on like the cusp of millennials, so I grew up where internet was. In, around, but not until later in high school. Right. Um, and now, basically, like anything that we had to learn, we could we can just look up. So you think about history and all those things. Of course, if you find that interesting, you should study it. But there isn't um, necessary. It isn't necessary anymore to have that memorization knowledge that we used to have in our education system. That's right. And so, looking at creating kids that can make decisions and can think critically and solve problems is what we should be focusing on and creativity. And and who can care for others and have Mm -hmm. some empathy for other people and other children in their classrooms Mm -hmm. and uh, and their friends. And and it relates to bullying and there's so much that it's attached to. But well, excellent information. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. How could people get in touch with you if they wanted to take the, like me, if you want to take the EQ 2.0? Yeah, you can... um, Follow me on Instagram at Love Your Mondays, or you can go to my website, www.loveyourmondays.co, not .com, not .ca, <laughs> .co. So it's Love Your Mondays. If you just Google that, I'll come up. Wonderful. Mackenzie Chilton, thank you so much. It's great information. I really appreciate talking Thanks to you about this today. Me. You're very welcome. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.